Good morning to you. That was weak. Good morning. Oh, that was really good. OJ promised. He promised he'd have this placed back up for me. In both services, he didn't do it. Let, let, the, let that be noted. Always good to be here. I, I always enjoy coming up to Lake Mary. You all have been special to us, and, and it's, just, it's just a pleasure. My, my wife is joining me this morning. I'd like her to stand. She loves it when I do this. Oh, she loves it. Stand, honey, stand. Yes. There she is. I'll be paying for that the rest of the day, but it was worth it. <laughs> February 22nd, 1980. Um, some of you weren't even born then. Uh, others of you, if you're my age, you might remember that day, especially as I sort of paint the, the circumstances around it. Uh, the location was Lake Placid uh, in upstate New York. It was the Winter Olympics. And that was the date that uh, the U.S. hockey team uh, played in the semifinals against the then Soviet Union team. And uh, Herb Brooks was the coach of this ragtag collection of recently graduated college students who were just semi-pro or maybe thinking of going to the pros. You couldn't be a professional athlete at that time and, and participate in the Olympics. And uh, we were playing uh, uh, that day the Soviet Union in the semifinal game. We sort of stumbled into that. We were 4-0-1-0 and one record in, in the uh, playoffs. Uh, Sweden and Finland were two and three. We were one and four. That meant we played the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union had a team that uh, they were all uh, members of the Soviet Army, quote unquote, but they really were just a traveling professional soccer team with that moniker. And uh, they were the best team in the world. They had played the Canadian All-Stars the year before and beat them by four goals. Uh, they were amazing to watch and just extremely proficient. Uh, on average, we're 10 years older than each of our play than our, than our average age of our players. And so it was one of those games where, you know, I, I watched it and, and I was thinking, you know, if we could just stay close. Uh, we'd played them in, a, in an exhibition game two weeks previous in Madison Square Garden. We lost 10 to three and the uh, Soviet coach said we really didn't even try all that hard and, and uh, that's how good the team was. So I, I, th I thought to myself as I sat cross-legged in front of my 19-inch black and white TV without cable, it had the rabbit ears antenna, and uh, I, uh, I thought to myself, you know, if we could just keep this close, it would be a miracle. If we just keep it close. Miracle. You believe in miracles? Amen. The... Uh, Word miracle is bandied about in our in our language. I think every day we 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 talk about it in sort of a casual way. We say things like "It's a miracle I passed that test," right? Or "It's a miracle I got that job," or "It's a miracle you remembered our anniversary." If you ever heard that, that's that's sort of a, a miracle. We, you know, you get the sense of of what that means. But what actually is a miracle? Really? And do you believe that those miracles still happen today? We're entering the uh, season of Advent, and the word used to describe the events uh, around the birth of Jesus, all these reminders, these passages, we use this time of year as, as, as a time of reminder, as well as a time of preparation. For the believer, and even the non-believer, Christmas is... An exceptional time. I know there might be some of you that, that don't care for this holiday that much. I've met people that don't care for Christmas that much. We've, we've always enjoyed Christmas in our, 
in our family. Uh, Renee and I got the decorations out yesterday. We put up our tree and, and decorated it and, and uh, got all the decorations out. Uh, my wife did a great thing. She um, Last year, she took pictures of where we had all the decorations of the different parts of, of our house. So we, instead of trying to remember where we put this or that, we got the pictures out, which I thought was really smart. It had nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> but Christmas is fun. Christmas is great. It's, it's a reminder. It's a reminder of family stuff. It's a reminder that we can prepare and expect for miracles in our lives. Miracle can be defined as this. I looked it up. A theologian by the name of Fisher wrote this. Miracle is defined as an event which the forces of nature, including natural power, cannot themselves produce and which must therefore be referred to, referred to a supernatural agency. You can't explain it away in terms of just what normally happens. Logic doesn't do it. There's a supernatural agency that brings about results that you just can't otherwise explain. There are events that God brings about to superimpose his will in a manner that can only be attributable to him. Why does, why does he do this? Why, why does God interject himself in this way into our lives? I think, at least for me, it's to get, our, it's to get my attention. It's to wake me up. It's to reorder my thinking and to allow me to see just a bit more clearly of how great his power is and how great his grace is. You and I can't make miracles happen. We pray for them, but we cannot make them happen. But Advent, this season, is a reminder that we can certainly prepare for those miracles in our lives. So I'd like you to open to our text today, Matthew chapter 1. It's in your bulletins as well. You can look at along as I read. I want to start uh, with verse 18 and read through verse 25. And, and our focus, as OJ already shared, our focus uh, is on the person of Joseph, the uh, earthly father of Jesus and uh, the uh, husband of Mary. Starting Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew writes, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is, of course, a quote from Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word. Joseph was an integral part of the Advent narrative, and there was good reason, I think, why God chose him. On, at first glance, you look, why this man? 
I think one of the enduring beauties of the Christmas story is the fact that the principal players were on the surface so ordinary. You wouldn't necessarily choose those people uh, to take these important roles and given what we view as important and critical. Joseph was a man who had no obvious qualifications for greatness. Scripture tells us he was a carpenter, a laborer, that lived in a nondescript town in an occupied country. Could there be a more unlikely choice for a man who would ensure the safety of the Son of God? I don't know if there could be, but God knew. When you look more closely at this passage, though, you see some qualities in this man. This was an ideal man. This was a man who prepared for the miraculous. There are three things I just want us to briefly touch on that uh, we can look at when we see Joseph's life and, and understand a little bit more of who he is. First of all, he was a man of faith. He was a man of faith. Verse 24 says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Faithful to the law. The Greek word there is dikaion. It's the same Greek word that we get our word deacon from. It literally means someone who is just or someone who is righteous. Someone who lives out what they believe, who's faithful to the law. Uh, Ger the German Bible, when Luther translated uh, this passage, he used this wonderful German word. The German word was gerecht. Isn't that a great word? Gerecht. Upright. And, and Luther said, gerecht is, is, is a person who is as he ought to be. In other words, he lived out his life in a way that he claimed he, that was important in what he believed. Joseph wasn't a legalist, nor was he a libertarian. He is shown to be a man who understood the spirit of the law, not just the letter. And he followed it. He was a man of faith. And can I just parenthetically say this? You know, it's, it's a great thing that we have our faith. And I hold on to that faith very dearly, as I know many, if not most of you do. But I want to tell you something. Faith isn't easy. Faith is hard. There are times when it doesn't look like it's going to turn out the way we want it to turn out. Or we're not sure that this is where God... Uh, really wants us, or why would he have us here, or why would he allow us to go through these things? Faith is hard. And I will tell you that Joseph, this was not an easy time in Joseph's life. But he was a man of faith. He was a man who had no secret life. We live in a culture today, if you've noticed the news lately, a lot of secrets are being exposed. Have you noticed that in our culture? A lot of people, their secrets are being exposed. It's not very pleasant. Jesus said in Luke 12, he said, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that it will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. That's a sobering passage. There, there are things that if we try to hide them, they will be exposed one day. But Joseph was a man, if you looked at his inner life, it matched what he proclaimed in terms of what he believed. His inner life matched his, his outer profession. So a person's character is established by what he or she does when no one is looking. So if you want to see the miraculous, then ask for the spiritual strength and commitment to make your inner life match the one 
that you demonstrate to the world. That's a challenge. Joseph was a man of faith who lived out what he believed. Second, he was a man of grace. Later on, verse 24, he was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. So because of that, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, the word grace does not appear in this passage, but you, you see the word disgrace there. And Joseph did not want to make an example of her. That word, Greek word for example has the sense about it of something that's usually a negative kind of connotation. It, 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 it's a public exposure of someone who's done something wrong. Joseph show, chose to show Mary grace instead of making her reap the consequences of her situation. He really had three choices when you think about it. He finds out Mary is with child and he's thinking to himself, okay, how do I handle this? If he were to follow the Old Testament law to the letter, he would have publicly uh, exposed her and, and that would have caused her shame and ridicule and it could have been more serious. The Old Testament law caused for physical punishment, sometimes even death. Or the opposite side, he could have just kept it a secret. Okay, you know, this is someone I want to marry. We'll just keep it a secret. I'll just go ahead and marry her anyway. No, no one will be the wiser. So very carefully, he chose, he chose a path that was honest but filled with grace. He followed the law. He knew, okay, I cannot marry this woman, but I don't want her to be shamed. He took the honorable course. He was a man of grace. We don't, we don't live in a very gracious culture. Uh, if you disagree with someone, you tend to vilify them. Uh, we live in a world of blacks and whites, uh, you know, rights and wrongs. We, we just don't, we don't quite bring disparate views together very easily. If you don't agree with me, you're my enemy. It's reminded of, as uh, so I was preparing this, the story of, of Chuck Colson, who was an aide to Richard Nixon, uh, before he was uh, exposed to having this uh, Watergate affair and, and uh, the illegal things that he did, he resigned in disgrace from the presidency. And they put on trial some of his aides because of the nefarious things they'd done. Chuck Colson was one of his aides. He's quite notorious for his, his uh, workings behind the scene to manipulate things uh, in favor of his boss. He was put on trial and convicted and uh, imprisoned for a period of time. But during the course of all this drama, Chuck Colson became a believer in Jesus Christ. And he made that commitment very sincerely and very deeply and lived it out for his remaining days. And, and as, as a new believer, he was involved in a Bible study before he, he was on trial with some other politicians in Washington, D.C. And guess what? There were Republicans and Democrats in this Bible study. Can you imagine that? Men who loved Jesus. Men who wanted to be gracious to each other. Even though they disagreed politically, they agreed on the most important things. So when Coulson was imprisoned, as he was going through this time, and he shares in his book, uh, midway through his sentence, uh, he got word that his son was... Uh, in deep trouble. Uh, he, he had been arrested. There were drugs involved. And, and because he was in, in prison, he couldn't be with his son. He really felt uh, a deep burden for his son. He shared this with his, 
friends that would visit him. One of the, one of the people in, in the Bible study was a man by the name of Harold Hughes. Harold Hughes was a senator from Iowa. He was a Democrat. Harold Hughes had a wonderful faith in Jesus. Harold Hughes uh, didn't come, it didn't come about, but it was really a beautiful gesture. He went to the judge who presided over his trial and said, I would like to go to that prison and serve the rest of that sentence for Chuck Colson while he is released so he could be with his family. Uh, that's grace. It's grace. Joseph was a man who understood grace. Last thing. Joseph was a man of obedience. If you look at, at verse 24, when Joseph woke up, I, I like that statement. He says, well, let's, let's all wake up, right? He woke up, had this dream. He woke up. Here's what he did. This is, this is I pray God would say this about my life and, 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 and the majority of things that I do. He did what the Lord had commanded him. He did what the Lord commanded him. Think about Joseph. Think about this. We know the story. We've got the end already. We don't have to be nervous about it. To this day, I can't watch my favorite football teams live. I have to record them. If they win, I watch them at my leisure. If they lose, I don't have to watch, right? I already know what's going to happen. Joseph didn't know what was going to happen. He just had a dream. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the step of faith that he had to take? Was that just a dream? Is that something that, that I should take seriously? Boy, it sure seemed real, sure, sure seemed poignant, but it was a dream. But he got up, he woke up, and he did what the Lord commanded him. And he didn't do it, this, the, this, this phrase, he, he did what the Lord, uh, what Lord had commanded him. It's a Greek word called paralabin. Para means close and beside, you know, that, this something that's close to you. And laban means you actively accept it. It's not like he begrudgingly did it. Like, okay, if I have to, I might as well go ahead. He embraced it. His obedience was wholehearted. He said, okay, I will go and I will do it. Joseph didn't just hear God, he obeyed him. And this word is the meaning of not just doing something that's required, but doing it in a gracious and loving way. Andy Stanley says obedience is stepping away from something that harms you toward the one who loves you. And Joseph stepped toward the one that he knew loved him, even though he didn't know what was really going to happen. He didn't have the whole story yet. Joseph was a man who obeyed God, even when to any other objective observer it made absolutely no sense at all. But he was a man of faith, man of grace, man of obedience. If you've heard me speak before, especially during Christmas, Christmas times past, you know that uh, Christmas has a very special place in the, in the life of my family. My mother and father uh, met uh, during Christmas time, and it was during World War II. My dad was in the Navy. He was on furlough. They had not really even met face-to-face uh, -face yet. They only met by letter. My mom wrote my father, a long letter. My father wrote a long letter back. They included pictures. My dad said he'd be home for Christmas. My mom was a single mother. She's uh, my older half-brother and half-sister. She raised him by herself with no financial support from her ex-husband. She was not in a real pleasant situation, but she persevered and uh, 
uh, met my dad. Not at Christmas in 1944. They had to keep the tree up. He didn't make it back till January, but he made it back. I'll share some of the rest of the story with you next week. But the, I, the touching, one of the touching things to me about that story is that my mother, as a single mom, decided to still hold on to her faith. She did not have it easy. It was a hard struggle. Yet my mom held on to her faith. She worshipped regularly. And it was a couple in her church that said, hey, we know this sailor in, in the South Pacific who's single, and, and you might want to write him a letter. My mom was obedient when it wasn't easy to be obedient. February 22nd, 1980. So I'm sitting cross-legged on the floor of my living room, my 19-inch black and white, and I'm thinking, ah, if we could just keep it close, it would really be nice. Game started, nine minutes into the game, Soviet scored. It was not unusual, and, and uh, okay, that's, you're thinking, oh, all right, hold on. But five minutes later, Buzz Schneider, isn't that a great name? Buzz Schneider scored the tying goal. I thought, oh, wow, we tied them, which we'd never done, you know, the, the other game, we never even came close to being them in the score, but we were tied with the Soviets in the semifinal game. Well, that's respectable. 17 minutes into that quarter, Soviets scored again, two to one. And then, interesting, and this is, this is what really got my attention, with two seconds left to go in that first period, Mark Johnson scored a goal. Two seconds left to go. And the Soviet coach got so upset at the, at the goalkeeper, who's the best goalkeeper in the world, believe me, he was just top-notch, got so upset he substituted him the rest of the game. As substitute goalie played for them the, the second and third periods. Second period came. Soviet scored. About two minutes into that period, it's 3-2. Period ended with that score. We went into the third and final period. Uh, and with um, eight minutes into that period, Mark Johnson scores again and ties the score 3-3. And now I'm going, oh, oh. Wow. Two minutes later, Mike Ruzioni, captain of the team, scored the go-ahead goal, and we were up four to three. It was, it was unfathomable. The crowd was going crazy. The Lake Placid Arena, was, it was just, everyone was just chanting USA, USA. It was, there was 10 minutes left to go in the game. And I will tell you, it was a barrage by the Soviets. You can watch the final four minutes on YouTube. You can pull it up. It's just like that team was just, they were so fluid and so effective. And Jim Craig, the goalie, is turning away shots, and, and guys are falling down in front of shots. I mean, it is, and my heart's just going like this. I'm just going, oh, oh. And it got to the end of that game. Al Michaels was the announcer. Al Michaels still does Sunday night football. He's, he's a good announcer. And he's, and he's just more and more excited, more and more excited. He gets the four seconds left to go. Al Michaels says these words. And, and uh, if you were there listening to it, you remember these words, you've probably heard it. Uh, if you've seen the documentary or seen the movie, Al Michaels says, do you believe in miracles? And we won the game. 
And he said, yes, I do. Wow. Won the game. That's just a sporting event. I know that. But it reminds me of what God's willing and ready to do in all of our lives. Advent is a time of miracles. God came to this earth in the form of a baby in the humblest of circumstances so we could understand who he is and experience his love and experience his forgiveness. It's a reminder this season of the greatest miracle of all. So let's prepare. Let's prepare by being men and women of faith, of grace, and of obedience. Do you believe in miracles? I do.